The text that Pastor John will be preaching from this morning is located in the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. I invite you to grab that and follow along. As I read Acts, chapter 8, verse 26 through 40. But an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go go towards the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. And he rose up and went. And behold, an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a minister of Canada's, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of all her treasure, had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him, and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this, As a sheep led to the slaughter, or a lamb before its shearer is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken up from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, pray, does this prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and began with this scripture. He told him the good news of Jesus. And as they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What is to prevent my being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught up Philip. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing on, he preached the gospel to all the towns till he came to Caesarea. Let's pray together. What a remarkable story, Father. My prayer as I hear it is that in this service right now during this message and afterward as people leave, the angel of the Lord would stand by and tell people here and there in some extraordinary way what their divine appointment is this week with their Ethiopian eunuch. Lord, grant that we would be sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit and grant that we would not miss out on these divine arrangements that are held out as possibilities to us as we listen. I pray that the evangelization of Minneapolis and St. Paul and the suburbs 
and the reaching of the unreached peoples of the world would take tremendous strides forward as your people grow in their ability to discern the work of the Spirit and the voice of the Lord. Would you come now and teach us to that end what your purposes are in this text for us at Bethlehem. In Jesus' name, amen. Now what stands out to me in this text, I hope it stands out to you, is that a very unlikely candidate for conversion, indeed for evangelization at all, is reached and is saved by a means that went totally against all human planning and would never have happened had Philip relied only on planning that he could do by his own mind based on scripture and prayer. The Ethiopian eunuch would not have been touched by God and brought into the kingdom had not the angel of the Lord stood forth, spoken to Philip in a most unusual and remarkable way and told him in verse 26, rise, go toward the south to a road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And Philip, obedient, just like Abraham, not knowing what he was going for, goes down and stands there by the road, evidently. Now what, Lord? And along comes a chariot. And the Lord says, verse 29, it says, the spirit says, first it was the angel, now it's the spirit. Verse 29, go up and join this chariot. That's all. Not what for, not who's there, not why, not what to say. There's a great lesson here in our guidance. How many times have you been in a situation where you have felt the word or the nudge or the push of the Lord into a situation and you've said, but what am I going to say? And there's no answer. Well, why am I going? Well, I don't know. Philip doesn't know what's going on here. He just knows first, go to the road. All right, I'm at the road. Now what? Go to the chariot. All right, I'm at the chariot. Now what? And that's it. The Lord doesn't need to say anymore because when he gets within earshot of the chariot, things begin to fall into place for Philip because he hears being read out loud. The timing of the Lord is absolutely incredible. Being read out loud so that he can hear Isaiah the prophet. He can't believe his ears. He's reading Isaiah in the chariot. He's not even a Jew. He's from Ethiopia. He's dark skin. He's reading Isaiah. And lo and behold, not just any old hard to understand place in Isaiah. He's reading Isaiah 53, tailor made for teaching about Jesus Christ. He's reading these words, verse 32. As a sheep led to the slaughter or a lamb before its shearer is dumb, so he opens not his mouth in his humiliation. Justice was denied him. And now Philip, no doubt, must send up a prayer in his heart. Oh, God, what a God you are. <laughs> what a God you are. That I should be brought out here into the middle of the wilderness. That one lone chariot coming along, going down to Ethiopia, should arrive in front of me. That he should be reading Isaiah and Isaiah 53, tailor-made for Jesus. What a God you are. And he says, do you know what you're reading? And the man invites him up. He leads him to Jesus, proclaiming the good news of Jesus like Isaiah 53, 6. Our iniquities were put upon him, yours and mine. If you believe in him, your sins can be forgiven. All you need to do is trust the Lord, follow him in baptism. Whoa, stop the chariot. Here's water. And it's over. It's done. And he goes on his way rejoicing, and Philip is whisked away by the Holy Spirit to another encounter. What's the point of this story? 
What do you think this is in the Bible for? Why does God record things like this? Why does it get included in inspired scripture, which is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete, fully equipped for every good work? So my question is, what's the good work this is equipping us for? What does this story equip us to do? And I think the answer is it equips us to believe and to receive the truth that one of the ways God evangelizes the world is through extraordinary guidance. I say one of the ways. One of the ways God uses to evangelize the world is through extraordinary guidance. The reason I say one of the ways is because when you read the book of Acts, it's obvious that you don't have to be told by an angel to evangelize people. They were evangelizing people everywhere they went. When they got pushed out of Jerusalem, everywhere they went, they talked to Jesus. All you need is love for Jesus and love for people, and you'll be evangelizing Jesus. You don't need a word from an angel to evangelize any more. You need a word from an angel not to evangelize. But I fear that we might be making the other mistake instead. The other mistake is that you think by planning... Evangelism, evangelistic crusades, evangelistic saturation efforts, all kinds of things that we're doing, for example, this summer. That that planning based on meditation on scripture and prayer is it. And God gets the world evangelized solely through human planning. And all I think this text wants us to be open to, aware of and receptive to is that there's another piece to the puzzle. Namely, here and there, now and then, according to his good pleasure, God extraordinarily leads his church in breakthroughs in evangelism and world missions that we'd never have achieved had we only done what we planned to do. So I'm not fighting planning, must be done. I'm not fighting obedience to the Great Commission, must be done. I'm saying this text is written in Holy Scripture to equip us for the good work of hearing the voice of the Lord over and above and beyond our planning. Philip could not have computed in a thousand years from Scripture that there was an Ethiopian eunuch on a road between Jerusalem and Gaza ready to receive him. That had to come from the voice of the angel of the Lord. And so the scriptures are wonderfully sufficient in this matter in that they protect us from thinking that our planning is the only way things get done in this world. And by opening us to the reality of God's extraordinary guidance... Eighteen times in the book of Acts, I have them written here in a footnote if you want to get them next week out of the file cabinet. Eighteen times in the book of Acts do we have this kind of extraordinary guidance that goes beyond what you could know by your own reflection upon Scripture or in prayer. And, as far as I know, there is no teaching anywhere in the Bible at all that abrogates... This kind of leading that says it's not valid beyond the book of Acts. It's just not there. Let me give you an illustration of a man who 
saw this and affirmed it with tremendous strength, namely Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, many of you have heard of, uh, died in 1982, preached for 30 years at the Westminster Chapel in London till 1968 and was one of the most powerful Bible-based uh, preachers, expository preachers uh, in the 20th century. Here's what he said, quote, Here again is a most extraordinary subject, and indeed a very fascinating one, and from many angles a most glorious one. There is no question but that God's people can look for and expect leadings, guidance, indications of what they are meant to do, there are many examples of this in Scripture, and I take one at random. You remember the story in Acts 8.26 8, of how Philip, the evangelist, was told by the angel of the Lord, Arise, go toward the south unto the way that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, which is a desert. Now, there are such leadings as that, he says. If you read the story of the saints, God's people throughout the centuries and especially the history of revivals, you will find that this is something which is perfectly clear and definite. Men have been told by the Holy Spirit to do something. They knew it was the Holy Spirit speaking to them and it transpired that it obviously was his leading. It seems clear to me that if we deny such a possibility, we are again guilty of quenching the spirit. Close quote. Now, the reason I choose Martin Lloyd-Jones as an advocate here is because of his view of Scripture, a very, very high view of Scripture, its infallibility and its sufficiency. And I know that those of us who love the Bible are often troubled wondering if we take Philip as a model and suggest that we should be open to the voice of the angel of the Lord or the Spirit of the Lord telling us to go somewhere and talk to somebody, we will jeopardize or minimize the value and the sufficiency and authority of Scripture and become so fascinated with this voice that we will leave behind this boring experience of reading a book. Now, we're concerned about that. Now, why was not Martin Lloyd-Jones who had just as high a view of the Scripture as anybody in this room, preached it for 30 years, based everything he believed on it, not afraid of that. Or at least not so afraid of it that he didn't teach we should be open to those leadings. Here's the reason. The sufficiency of Scripture, if you understand it biblically, means two things. It means, first that the Scripture gives us all the authoritative truth we need to be saved and nurtured and grow spiritually. And secondly, it means that it gives us all the authoritative truth we need in order to make good judgments about what is right and what is wrong. That's what the sufficiency of Scripture means. However, it does not mean that God cannot today speak through nature. Psalm 19.1, the heavens are telling the glory of God. It does not today mean that God cannot speak through conscience. Romans 2.15, the law is written on their hearts, accusing or testifying concerning them. It does not mean that God cannot speak through the angel of the Lord, gifts of prophecy, words of wisdom, words of knowledge. It doesn't mean that. What it means is that all those things are insufficient to save us, insufficient to guide us 
insufficient to nurture us and sanctify us. Only the scripture is complete and sufficient in this sense. That the scriptures give us the only authoritative rule for completing and assessing and using all those other revelations. Now, did you hear that? Let me say it again. Only the scripture gives us a complete and sufficient and authoritative rule by which all those other revelatory forms can be completed, assessed, and used for the upbuilding of the church. Without the scriptures, those would totally be incomplete and misleading and dangerous. With the scriptures, they can fall into their proper place. Let me illustrate with an analogy about sailing, which I know nothing about except common sense. So this might make no sense to you sailors or whatever you call people who sail. I buy a boat and I buy, I mean, with the boat comes a manual. And on the front of the manual, it says all you need to know for successful sailing. And so the title is claiming the sufficiency of the manual. Got it? The sufficiency of the manual. All you need to know about sailing. And on page six, it says, before hoisting the sail, be sure that you know the way the wind is blowing so as to put the rigging in proper position to avoid capsizing or injury. I'm just assume that if you put it up like this, it might, you know, and knock you or something. So you uh, go out in the boat, having read the manual, and just before you put the sail up, you hold a little cloth in the air like this, novice that you are, and uh, see which way the wind is blowing. And your guest, who's sitting in the boat with you, reading the front of the manual, says, Hey, it says here on the front of this manual, all you need to know for successful sailings. So how come you have that thing in the air? Why don't you look in the book to see which way the wind is blowing? Because the book says that all you need to know is in the book. Now, that would be a mistake, wouldn't it? And that's why people are making mistakes today in saying that the sufficiency of Scripture means that you shouldn't have your antenna up in the wind of God's Spirit. The Bible claims a tremendous sufficiency for itself in this word, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof and correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete, there's the word, complete, fully equipped for every good word. Those, that's where you get the doctrine of sufficiency of scripture, complete and every good work. That does not mean that God cannot speak through nature, as the Bible teaches he does, because it's sufficient to tell us everything we need to know, or that he can't speak through conscience, as the Bible teaches that he does, so that we can sufficiently know, or that he speaks through dreams or visions or extraordinary revelations. Rather, the Bible simply claims that it will give us all we need in order to complete, assess, and properly use any other means by which God tries to get at us, lest we think we are cut adrift and don't have any firm criterion anymore for making assessments about information that comes into our mind. I asked a pastor one time whose church was experiencing some remarkable guidance in people. And they were acting on the guidance, and amazing things were happening in evangelism, just like with Philip. I asked him, 
Is the result of this in your church that people are being drawn away from the Bible because it's sort of boring after you start getting messages? You know, wow, if you act on a message that comes into your mind and something wonderful happens and a person gets saved, do you really want to go back and just read a book? And, and he said it's not having that effect at all. In fact, the people who are most discerning and most effective in following the lead of the Spirit in our church are people who are saturating themselves more in the Bible than ever for two reasons. One, they're discerning, they realize to be dependent on the Scriptures, and two, they're discovering that the more they are steeped and saturated in the first Word of God written and authoritative, the more discerning they are of the movement of the same Spirit who inspired that book. And therefore, they are memorizing whole chapters of Scripture. Now, it doesn't always happen that way. It's dangerous. It's a dangerous doctrine that I'm propounding here, namely, openness to and seeking the extraordinary leading of the Holy Spirit. It's dangerous. If, if people are found leaving the meditation on Scripture in pursuit of exciting impressions and feelings and leadings and voices, you can be sure that their spiritual sensitivity to those will be very inadequate. And their insights and responses will probably be misleading and need to be treated with caution. It's a dangerous thing. It's the way sects get started, right? It's the way cults get started. Somebody gets a revelation. They gather a, a, a group around them who buy that revelation and boof, they're off. Boom, they're off and, and running with, with some new sect or some new occult group. It's a dangerous doctrine. Just like knives are dangerous. And we do not outlaw knives. And the reason we don't outlaw knives is because they're so valuable in preparing meals in the kitchen. My son Barnabas was preparing a cheese sandwich yesterday with a butcher knife, big block of yellow cheese. And uh, I was watching him. He, he knows how to do it. He puts it like this and <coughs> like this. I said, now, what would you do with that block of cheese, Barnabas, if you had no knife? How would you make a sandwich? No idea. How could you do that? You kind of scrape it off with your fingernails and put it in there. Knives are valuable. The reason we don't outlaw knives, though you can kill people and people get killed with knives every day, just like sects and cults get started with crazy revelations every day or now and then. You get the point? Just because something can be abused, misused to the hurt of people, you don't necessarily rule it out. Now, I realize that I am a long way from having arrived at perfectly obeying what I already know from this book. So I can imagine my own conscience saying, why in the world are you even talking about extraordinary revelation or information or leading when you haven't even gotten this book down yet? And as I thought about that yesterday, it hit me that if I were to insist on perfect obedience to any given part of this book before I move to another part, I'd never move. So if I insisted that once I start, say, in Galatians 6, so i got to get Galatians 6 down before I go to, say, the Sermon on the Mount, I'd never get to the Sermon on the Mount. So none of us lives that way, nor should we. 
that we should sort of categorize the way God leads and works and say, well, I'll, I'll perfect this one, then I'll move to that one, then I'll move to that one. That's just not life. We should simply say, Lord, I know I'm imperfect. I know I'm growing. I want to obey your word perfectly because you said be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And I strive and I would like to be open to everything you have to give by way of guidance and usefulness in evangelizing the world. God is about great things today in breakthroughs in the world. And he is using extraordinary means today, just like he did in the book of Acts. I want to close by giving you a couple of stories. Actually, it's all one story. The source for my story, because it's really an amazing one, is this book right here, Catch the Vision 2000, published this year. You can check out this story by calling Bill and Amy Stearns. They work out at the U.S. Center. And phone number is in here, and the name of the missionary that I'm going to cite is Reachable. And so this is all trace-outable, because it all happened in the last six years, though it could have come straight out of the book of Acts. In 1985, Clarence Duncan, there's the man you'd have to track down to get this verified, and he's a real live human being ministering in Africa. In 1985, Clarence Duncan arrived in Africa as a missionary. Among the Muslim, solidly Muslim people, the Yao, Y-A-O, the Yao people. They're mainly in Tanzania, Mozambique, Malawi. He settled in a village, and after a short time, uh, the village leaders came to him, and they said, what is your name? And he said, my name is Clarence, Mr. Clarence. My name is Mr. Clarence. And they said, why are you here? And he said, I have come because I want to tell your people about Isa al-Masih, Jesus the Messiah. Now, that may not seem extraordinary to us, but it is, as you'll see in a moment. A couple, couple months later, when they realized they could trust him, uh, the leader came back to him and they said, Do you know why we allowed you to stay in this village? And Clarence said, uh, well, I never thought about it. And they said, 21 years ago, um, a very old Yao man came to our village and called for a meeting. And when we asked him his name, this Yao man 21 years ago said, my name is Mr. Clarence, which isn't even an African name. When asked him uh, why he came, he said, I want to tell your people about Isa al-Masih. These were your very words two months ago. Twenty-one years ago, Mr. Clarence led four of our villagers to follow Jesus. So we ran them out of the village and we killed Mr. Clarence. And the reason we allowed you to stay is because we were afraid. That was 1985. Now, two years ago, January 14, that's what it says in here. And this book was published in 91, but maybe it was written in 90. So it could have been 88 or 89. January 14, 88 or 89. This is the sequel to the story, even more remarkable. That morning, 24 Muslim elders approach Clarence's house, Clarence Duncan's house. And they have a big crowd with them, and Clarence asked that they send the crowd away so that he could deal with them alone. They came into the house. 23 of the elders sat around the outside of the rim of the room, and the main elders sat in the middle and said, we want to ask you some questions. And he said, all right, but I'm only going to answer your questions from the Bible because I don't want you to think that I have made up my answers to your questions. 
The first question was, why do you Christians say that there are three gods? And Clarence said, the answer is given in Deuteronomy 6, 4. And he handed all of them Bibles in the trade language, directed them to the page number for Deuteronomy 6, 4, and read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And then he directed their attention to Mark 12, 29, where Jesus, Esau himself, quotes this text approvingly and says, Our God is one. The questioning lasts all day until five o'clock in the afternoon, and then they disperse. And the leader, his name is Sheikh Abu Bakr, says, I would like to see you in a week. A week passes and they get together and Abu asks, uh, do you know why we came to see you last week? And he says, well, I assume you wanted to ask me questions about Christianity. He said, no, the church is growing so fast we knew we had to kill you. And so we met together for three days prior to coming to you, and we dealt in our magic, and we had our plan. And the plan was that with every question you asked, your mouth would go dumb, and then you would fall on the ground and be paralyzed, and after a bit of paralysis, you would die. But every time you answered, you did not grow dumb. And not only did you not get paralyzed, but you stood up several times and walked around the room, waving your arms. And we knew that a greater spirit was at work here than our magic. And I want to be Christian. And Clarence said, is that the whole story? And he said, well, it goes back further than that. When I was a teenager in our village, the sheik said, we were not Muslim and we were not Christian. We were the Achua people and we had our own religion. There was a hill behind our village where I would go up to pray every day. And as I would be up there praying, one time a great light suddenly shone, a blinding light. And out of the light, a big hand came toward me holding an open book. And I looked and I saw writing on the page and the voice said, read. And I said, I cannot read for I've never been to school. And the voice again said, read. And so I looked and I read. I ran back to my village and told them what happened and they thought I would be dead because they'd seen a fire on the hill, he said. And I told them I could read and they laughed and said, you can't read, you haven't even been to school. And they brought a book and I read. And the Muslim leaders gathered around and were so amazed that they made me one of the leaders and trained me in Islam. And for 15 years, I was the greatest debater against Christians in the Muslim community as our village turned Muslim. He paused and then said, Do you remember the first question I asked you last week? Yes. You gave me an answer from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. That's right. And then Bakr looked him in the eye and said, that was the same passage that this voice on the mountain showed me. And at that moment, I knew that your God was the true God. And Duncan asked him, well, why did you keep asking questions? And he said, because I wanted all these Muslim leaders to know what the Christians believe. And I wanted them to hear it from you. And so the whole day I pretended unbelief so that I could ask more questions. And now I want to become a Christian. Now, all over the world today, God is at work in extraordinary breakthroughs in the world. And I want to make something real clear as we as we end here. 
the steady state, persevering, faithful meat and potatoes of the Christian ministry at home and abroad is the use of the ordinary means of grace for winning and upbuilding the body of Christ. Is that clear? That is what we will survive on. That's what builds and sustains the church. And all I'm pleading for this morning is that one of the reasons the inspired scriptures tells us stories like Philip hearing the voice of an angel to go down to a road is that we ought to be ready, willing and receptive of those extraordinary touches of the Holy Spirit in our lives so that we don't limit ourselves to only what we can achieve by planning, but also experience what we can achieve through God's extraordinary means as he gives us guidance in these most remarkable Ways, And my hope is that as we close this service now, and there are a few minutes between services, 10 or 15 minutes here, that you could linger, that as our prayer teams stand at the front, one of the things some of you have been touched to seek prayer for would be this. You know that you have been guided by the Spirit in the past. Many of you have received unusual nudges, unusual urgings and pushings to do things. And sometimes you've been confused about it. Sometimes you've resisted it. Sometimes you've followed it with great gladness. But you would like prayer that goes something like this. Would you pray for me that I would be more receptive, more sensitive, just more discerning to the voice of the Spirit when he, in those extraordinary moments, directs me to some Ethiopian eunuch across the office, across the town, or some letter or some phone call or some conversation so that I won't miss it. I think there's some of you that really ought to seek prayer because you know God's been doing that in your life and you would like to have it refined and and made more mature and your uh, wavelength more in tune with heavens. Let's pray. Father, my heart's desire is that I be faithful in the meat and potatoes of the ministry, preaching teaching, visiting, counseling, marrying, burying, praying, studying, mobilizing, inspiring. But Lord, you know my heart's desire and the hearts of many people here would be that just as Philip was a faithful evangelist, there came moments in his life when, in a most extraordinary way, for your sovereign and good purposes, You set your favor upon a person or group of people by giving extraordinary guidance. And I pray that that will be our portion at Bethlehem, as well as persevering faithfulness in the daily ministry. I ask it in the name of Jesus and all the people said, Amen.